we're fortunate enough to have a dog park here in East Nashville. It's a little neighborhood area over in Shelby Park. They have a fenced off section where you bring in a bunch of dogs and they just run around, chase each other and wrestle and get their yayas out and they tend to behave a hell of a lot better when you take them home. But I'd bring Russell over there just about every day and um, he was running around. I was standing there just a few days ago and I noticed this little baby. It was a toddler, little bitty kid. Not really sure what the age was, but he could barely walk. He's just waddling around and he was holding onto something. And I didn't know what it was, but I went a little closer. When I got up there, there's dogs running around everywhere. You know, crazy dogs having a good time. And there's this little toddler standing there holding a bag of pork rinds. I can't see what could possibly go wrong. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Brian Henneman. Brian is a singer, a guitar player, a songwriter, and a band called the Bottle Rockets. You can find out everything you need to know about Brian at BottleRocketsMusic.com. The Bottle Rockets recently re-released their first two albums in one package and put in a big 40-page booklet. And they were nice enough to ask me if I would write some liner notes for them. They asked a lot of different people, and... Uh, they stuck my notes on the same page as James McMurtry and Lucinda Williams, so I felt pretty good about that. But I'd like to read my part of the liner notes. One of my fondest concert-going memories was seeing the Bottle Rockets at the patio in Indianapolis, Indiana, back in the early 90s. They were loud, brash, bold, and ragged, and it was obvious that they loved what they were doing. Here was a rock and roll band from the Midwest making music that spoke to me more than anything coming out of New York, L.A., Nashville, or Seattle ever could. These records remind me of summer road trips with my best buddy Todd Fox, Boiled Peanuts, Roadside Attractions, and the Bottle Rockets on the cassette deck. This collection marks the birth of one of America's last great rock and roll bands and is essential listening to anyone who loves American music. For most bands, this would be a high watermark, but to this day, the Bottle Rockets just keep getting better. Hail, hail rock and roll. I caught up with Brian when we were on tour in the upper Midwest in the dead of winter. And we recorded this in a hotel room in Madison, Wisconsin. And it mostly focuses on the question of how does a band go from Festus, Missouri, playing these dives and end up on Atlantic Records, touring the world and on national television. So Brian tells us a lot of great stories from that period. Here's Brian Henneman. Right, that was that was the old days. Pre, you know, believe it or not, there was a world without internet. So, so stuff like had to travel in different ways. You know, people had to tell people, and people had to like. That was the days of like you know the old school 
they called it the A&R man, but it was like the talent scout, you know? You couldn't just look on YouTube and see how many hits somebody had or views of their video and get a sense of what was going on. So they used to have to send people, you know, on airplanes to like come to shows and, and check you out. They didn't just use the internet to, to see what was happening. And so the original record deal came through Tony Margarita, who was Uncle Tupelo's manager. This was like the original record deal which I wasn't even looking for. It just came from, from doing a... Uh, I wasn't even really meaning to do a demo. It was like during the recording of Tupelo's second album, I was out there with him in Massachusetts. And at the end of the night, you know, of the end of the recording day, we were just... We had the, the brand new technology for the time, the DAT recorder. Remember the DAT tape? So we just wanted to play with it and see how it worked. And those guys had been working on their songs all day and just didn't give one rat's ass about doing any more of their own music at the end of the day. So we were living in the studio. It's like the studio and the living quarters were in the same place. And, and so we were, you know, we weren't ready to go to bed yet. So, you know, they wanted to play around with the DAT recorder. So they just said, hey, let's do some of your songs. So I had some songs written and we would do them. And those guys would, I remember, I think it was Jay was, banging on the wood-burning stove as a percussion instrument, just whatever we were doing, sitting around, goofing off. And that was it. That was the end of it, you know, that that somehow or other, the DAT tape ended up with Tony. And I was out on the road, you know, happy-go-lucky roadie guy, just just thinking that was my life, you know, woo-hoo, you know, party. Roadie, I like it. And, and we used to call in like once a week. There were no cell phones. There was, you know, nothing. You had to go to pay phones to like make contact with the home base. So we were at a Denny's somewhere in, I think it was around San Francisco. It was California, I know for sure. And we were outside of Denny's on the pay phone. And like one of those guys was talking to Tony and Tony asked for them to put me on the phone. So I get on the pay phone with Tony and he says, Hey man, I got you a record deal. <laughs> and i'm like what 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 how why why how you know what what happened and he said i took that dat tape and gave it to a guy in minneapolis i know his name was steve daly ran east side digital records and he like gave me a record deal and and i i was i didn't have a band i didn't have anything you know nothing i was i was uncle tupelo's roadie <laughs> with a record deal so so and i'm in california you know i'm like what do i do with this so i had to get home you know when we got home I had to had to figure out how to put a band together so it was like i called you know called mark first who was living in nashville and mark joined instantly he was just like yes you know bam he it's like he was literally like basically there at ground zero. I mean, the only, the only time I did longer in this band than him is the time it took me to get from California back to home to give him a phone call. So Mark was there and then Tom Parr sort of kind of weaseled his way into the band, <laughs> which he, he kind of got me drunk and tricked me into it because, because I vowed there would be no Parr brothers in the band just because of like the problems we had in chicken truck. But it was okay. It was good. It was like, you know, it was, it was all good. We're like, fine. Okay, cool. Now we got Tom in the band. We got Mark in the band. And, and, but we didn't have a bass player. So, and there were no bass players in, in Festus. You know, just none that would, because that was our problem. Bob Parr, that's what broke Chicken Truck up, was he d would refuse to go on the road. He didn't want to travel. You know, he didn't want to do that stuff. So he was out. He wasn't going to do it. 
And he was the only guy we knew to play bass. So we were just kind of stuck for a minute. But then Jeff Tweedy saved the day by finding Tom Ray in Chicago, who was playing with Poi Dog Pondering at the time. And he said, man, I think you got to, he, he called me up and said, you got to meet this guy. I think you guys are going to be perfect. You know, I think he'll be your perfect bass player. And we went to Chicago not long after that. And I met him and, and sure enough, he was perfect. So then, you know, bam, we had, the, we had the band, made the record, the first album, and, you know, did that. And then we made the second album, the Brooklyn side. Where was the first album recorded? First one was done in Athens, Georgia at, uh, it was, it was a, the last recording studio I was ever in, actually, before that was down there with Tupelo making the March 16th through 20th album. It was John Keane's studio, who was like R.E.M.'s guy, you know. So, And so we, we had been down there and recorded the March 16th through 20th with Peter Buck produced it. You know, we stayed at his house, recorded at John Keane's studio, which was walking distance from Peter Buck's house. And so when when the time came for us to do it, that was really the only place I knew of. So I said, why don't we see if we can do it there? And, and we were able to. So that's where the first one was done. Then we made the second album, which we did in New York with Eric Amble. That was our, you know, that was the step up. There's also for Eastside Digital. But then what happened was that started like doing really well, like with the reviews and things in, in magazines and stuff. And also, at this time, this was like, we're talking about like 1993 into 94 here, which was the tail end of Uncle Tupelo. It was kind of like, you know, they were, they were getting ready to break up at that time in the, the end times of Uncle Tupelo. But it was also during that time frame when all the major labels, you know, were sensing that there was like some kind of like craze about this kind of music you know it's like uncle tupelo the jayhawks were coming up at that time it was like you know they were sensing that maybe this is going to be the next big thing and and so every major label had signed one of these bands you know it's like the tupelo was like warner brothers sire and and jayhawks whoever they were on i can't remember but the only one that didn't have one was atlantic so you know they were kind of like the last one to the party with that stuff and so they sent their people out, you know, like we were in the press, you know, people we were being talked about. And so they, you know, came out and checked us out at a show in St. Louis and whatever and blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, they wanted to sign us. But we had just put the album out. I mean, it was like it was like it hadn't been out long at all. So it really wasn't time to go make another album yet. And this was the, still the first album? This was the Brooklyn side. Okay. So... What they did was they worked up a deal with Eastside Digital to license the album from them, you know, for, for seven years. And Atlantic would take it on and do the distribution and the promotion and the whole bit. And so it would kind of, it would be an Atlantic record, but it was still tied to Eastside Digital. I don't know how they negotiate that stuff. So that's how it happened. It was just like, just like the old school, you know. They were reading about it in magazines. They sent some people out. The people liked it. You know, it was it was just it was the tail end of the old music business. You know, the way it used to run in the old days. Well, the story of the first ever seeing him was it was in St. Louis, and we used to go see the Morels all the time, Lou Whitney band, and so we would drive up from Festus and go to this club called Off Broadway and. St. Louis, and that's where the Morels always played. They had like a regular, like they'd play there once a month. 
we'd go see him all the time. And it was me and Scott Taylor went, actually. And I always will remember what night this was. I don't remember the actual date of the night, but I remember the night that we didn't go in right when we got there because we were sitting in the car, listening, finishing up listening to the KC95 Real Rock Radio world premiere of ZZ Top Eliminators album. <laughs> so we didn't go right in right away. We were just, you know, we we were we had to wait out in the car and finish listening to Eliminator. So when we listened to the end of Eliminator, we went into the club and paid our $5 cover or whatever it was, sat down and, and we, you know, looked at the stage and we didn't recognize the Morell's equipment up there. You know, it looked like, they, well, wow, they've got all new amplifiers. You know, what, what's going on? I don't know. And then the guy from the club gets on stage and says, look, we, the Morells had to cancel tonight, but we have a band that we think you'll really like in their place. And then they're called the Dell Lords. And if you don't like them, we'll give you your money back. You know, so, so you can, you can stay and, and listen to them. And if the, if you want to leave because of it, just you go to the door and we'll refund your five bucks. So we loved them. You know, we watched them. We love, we didn't ask for our five bucks back. And so that, that was my first viewing of Eric Amble was in that band. I thought he was great. And then he came back around to town later. He had his band, the Roscoe's Gang, which was basically him performing with the Morels. So it was like, you know, heaven for me because I love them both. And and so, you know, he I was just a fan. You know, I was a fan of the guy. I thought he was great. And then when we did, after our first album came out, then Steve Daly, who was the head of Eastside Digital, who who put the first album out, was friends with Eric Amble somehow. I didn't know this. But he sent Eric Amble our first album after it came out. And, and you know, I learned that Eric really liked it and said, I'd like to work with these guys. I didn't know this at the time. But then when we were getting ready to make the second album, Steve Daly said, would you guys want to work with Eric Amble? And, and I was like, well, well, hell yeah. You know, he was the first, like, famous person that was interested in us, you know. So I was like, well, fuck, yeah, I like that guy. Yeah, I want to, I would love that. So, you know, our first gig in New York City which was in a blizzard and, and as all things that have to do with us has like a giant story behind it. But anyway, he came to the show there, were, you know, 25 people maybe at the, our first show ever in New York city, Be, not because they didn't want to come. It's because they couldn't get there because it was like this blizzard that shut all the trains down and the whole bit show still went on and Eric made it to the show and we met him. And, uh, yeah, just from the first meeting, I knew that we were going to yeah, yes, we want this guy to produce the next album. And so it, we go out to New York later in the year. It was summertime when we made the album and get out there. And it was only then that I learned that he had played with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. You know, it was kind of like, I didn't even know that during all the Dell Lords and, and, and Roscoe's gang stuff. So that made it like even more amazing. It's like we get to New York and, and, you know, it's like, this is the friggin' I love rock and roll guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, hell yeah. So, so unlike the first album where that thing was recorded so fast, it wasn't even like we recorded an album. You know, it was just like, we, we did all the music in one day, all the vocals in the second day, and then mixed it on the third day. And it was like, you know, in and out. And so there, but, but the Brooklyn side was the first time we had like an actual, we made an actual album. Like we got there early for a, and like rehearsed for a week and, and like made arrangements. Like, you know, we had a producer like John Keene pr produced the first album, 
but he didn't have time to do any production. Basically, he just recorded the first album because we didn't have time to like even make decisions. You know, he wasn't like, why don't you guys try this? It was like, no, we have to capture this now or it's not going to get caught. We're not going to get everything done. But we had time in New York with, with Roscoe. So, you know, we were like moving the chords around, like put this bridge here, do this there, you know. So it was actually like we were rearranging songs and then going into the studio. Now, at this time, 1994, I guess that would have been. Yeah, summer of 94. We were all just, it was on, we were on the wild adventure, you know. And this was, this was, we weren't on Atlantic yet. This was still Eastside Digital days. So, so. Just going to New York, and li- this was our first opportunity to like live in New York City for for a couple weeks. So we were on the you know the full like you know, we were drinking then partying. It was like, and we're living in New York for two weeks. So one of the first brilliant things Eric figured out is that you know, and he was drinking too in these days. I mean, we were all like like friggin' drunk, 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 drunk. You know, we were we were the Aerosmith of Roots Rock at that time. <laughs> like everybody in the organization was that way our producer was that way but he was smart because he knew to make the party at the studio so it was like instead of having us gallivanting about new york and trying to corral us in to record the thing he he like put all the booze you know it's like we built a bar you know it was like it was like the party was there and, and, you know, we would, people would, he would invite people over, you know, and stuff like that. So it was actually cool that we actually stayed in the studio and he, he had a really good skill at keeping the drunken focus. You know, it was like, it was like, we're all drunk, but if we're going to do it, we're going to do it in this room where even though we're drunk, we can still record this album. And that's what happened. I mean, you know, there were, there were nights we, we slept in the studio you know it was just like because we were just too drunk to do anything otherwise the drunkest night of the recording was the spanish wine night back in back in those days roscoe always had like like hilarious rules for things you know it was like like one of the rules was when you do rockabilly you have to drink spanish wine don't ask me what it meant (laughs) i never knew what the correlation was but anyway so we had spanish wine that night and and I'm trying to think of the, there were three songs recorded that night. There was uh, Idiot's Revenge and then Truck Driving Man, which became, it, it's actually a bonus track on the new double thing. And then Young Lovers in Town were the three songs that we got accomplished in one, you know, Spanish wine drunk experience. And it's pretty funny because in the song, Young Lovers in Town, in the in the guitar solo, if you know where to listen, you can hear the guitar string break. I was like, I was drunk and just bending the string and it like goes pink and that's the end of it. And then I finished the song with five strings on the guitar and one dangling down, but that's what's on the recording. So it was like, you know, that Roscoe was really good at like knowing how to wrangle us, you know, maximize the drunkenness and then have it to where the next day you wouldn't regret what was done. He had a really good sense of like, knowing when he was really capturing like rock, you know, it wasn't like a foolish drunken decision. So he, he really became a, like a hero to me personally during those times, just because I'm, I'm amazed and and just listening to this stuff when we were like thinking about what to put on the bonus tracks and stuff, 
it's even more impressive to me that that he had that skill somehow to like wrangle us. You know, it's like we were just wild. We were like wild animals, wild hillbillies loose in New York City for, for weeks. And just, yeah. So I don't know how that that is. I will admire him to the day I die for figuring out how to how to do that stuff with us. Because he was in as bad a shape as we were. <laughs> yeah, there was a beer distributor right next door to the recording studio. So literally, we could bring cases over on the hand truck, you know. That <laughs> and that happened. That was the way it went. It was great. It was, man, that was an experience for sure. No, do you know what? I was actually wigged out. I was afraid to sign the major label contract. You know, it was like, it was like, it just seemed too weird to me because I had a sense that we were getting picked up just because everybody else had already been signed. You know, it was, it was kind of like, well, they're the only one that hasn't been, you know, I, I don't, I never was convinced that they loved us as much as we were just literally the only one that hadn't been signed yet. <laughs> and I had all sorts of reservations about it. It was like, I never had that. Wow. You know, we might, and, and, you know, I was just leery of the whole thing anyway, because I don't know. It just didn't seem like a type of music. I couldn't envision it, you know, like going big time. And it seemed like, and I'd, you know, all through my life being interested in music, I'd read stories of people having problems with major labels and the whole bit. And I wasn't even convinced that I could handle being a rock star. You know, I was like, man, I, because remember, I was just a roadie. This whole thing has taken, has blown up like an exploding cigar in my face. I didn't even want a record deal. And so, but, you know, it was, it was quite a heavy thing before I signed that Atlantic contract. You know, I was like, man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this. But I did it. Went ahead and did it. And, you know, everything was great it was like i was like man i'm glad i did this but that only lasted six weeks okay it was like getting pretty really exciting for a while there it was like you know where they were flying us to all these radio conventions we were meeting all these radio people it was going up the charts it was like you know we were on like the billboard heat seeker chart we were you know had a article on the cover of billboard magazine we were, you know, it was all the stuff, you know, was going on. And as it was going on, I was like, well, you know, nothing's changing in a negative way here. I can roll with this, you know. Yeah, maybe a rock star ain't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's okay. You know, we're jet setting across America, you know, performing little three song sets at like hard rock cafes for a bunch of radio people and doing all this crap, getting free drinks every step of the way. And, and it was like looking good. And, and, you know, Conan O'Brien show, you know, we're on TV. It was like all the stuff was happening. That was kind of a crazy day. I, 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 well, there were, there's actually several good stories with the Conan O'Brien day. One was that the flight from St. Louis to New York was like the best air flight ever in the history of my life was because it was, this was back in the days of the, what was that big plane that had two motors on the wing and one on the tail, like the L-1011 or something like that? Huge, huge jet. They don't fly them anymore. They're they're gone. Or D it was I think it was L-1011 or DC-10, one of those. It was this big-ass, super-wide plane with like five seats in the middle, 
and then an aisle on each side of those with like three seats by the windows. So you, you like you had, you know, huge bathrooms everywhere. And so the we get to the air, we get stuck in a traffic jam on the way to the airport. Just make it to the airport like at the, in the nick of time. And then we had all our guitars with us. And we were going to check them at the gate at the check-in, and we're already late. But Bob, our manager, Bob Andrews, was going to wait for us at the gate, and we were going to check all our guitars in. But we couldn't check them in without our tickets. And Bob had our tickets down at the gate, and this was the security wasn't like it is now. You could just kind of breeze through and get down to the gate. So I'm like wearing cowboy boots, and like I have to like. Sp- Sprint as fast as I can from the check-in all the way down to the gate because there's no cell phones. So I have to like go get Bob and tell him that we need our tickets to check our stuff. And then me and Bob had to run all the way back to the to the thing, check our stuff in. And then Tom Parr had to go park his car in a long-term lot or some crap. And so so Bob w- went with him to park the car or something like that while we went down to the gate to get on the plane. We're, we're like minutes late we get on it was me and mark and tom ray got onto the plane and we're waiting for tom Parr and bob andrews to get on the plane and they're just not showing up <laughs> and 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 so we're like well you know and and like they they have like closed the airplane door now and they're still not on it but th- but this flight just keeps getting more awesome because it's like I don't know what the deal was if they were just transporting the plane to New York or whatever, but it was this plane that held like four hundred and fifty passengers or something like that, and there was like a total of eighty people on it. So it was like this, like it was like friggin' having Elvis's airplane. I mean, it's like you could lay all the armrests, you could put them all up and lay down flat across the five seats in the middle. It was like there was almost like a bathroom for everybody on the plane. They had like these little old lady stewardesses that were like when you'd order a drink, you know, and they would give you like as many bottles of the liquor as you wanted. I don't know what was going on, but it was like this vacant giant airplane we were on and we were and, and, but Bob and Tom, we thought they're going to miss this awesome flight. You know, it's like, we're sitting there on this empty plane and thinking that they're going to miss it. But they, but like at the last second they showed up and they told us that it was like, you know, the outside the gate they told him if the motor hasn't started yet we'll open the door again and let you on but if he started the motor already we can't do it but they hadn't started the motor the engine yet so they were able to get on so anyway that's like this crazy like like mixed up time frame story of getting on the plane then they flew us to new york and the first night the night before the show we stayed in two different hotels i'm thinking this is a long time ago i'm trying to remember this but I know the the one night we stayed, what's the famous hotel where the Beatles stayed? Was it like the Warwick Hotel or something like that in New York City? It was like it was like a, it's where the George Harrison got his Rickenbacker. You know, it was like it was like anyway, this famous, famous hotel. And me and Tom Ray were roommates in this like famous New York City hotel. And we go up there, and the first function of Tom Ray is to sit on the toilet and stop it up. So it was <laughs> we <laughs> We haven't been in the Warwick Hotel 10 minutes and we already have to call a guy to come up and, and like, like, cause it like overflowed all over the floor and everything like that. So that was good. And it was like this total rock star scene because Janet, my wife, who was not my wife yet at the time, she had, she was in Paris with her sister. 
So it was like her and her sister were flying in from Paris to go to the Conan O'Brien show. So it was like this crazy thing. It's like, we're stopping up toilets at the Warwick Hotel. My girlfriend is like flying in from Paris. <laughs> and like Atlantic Records is like sending a, you know, a limo to pick her and her sister up to like come. It was like this, like total rock star shit. And it's like, and we're, we were, oh, I'm trying to remember. Oh, just so much shit goes on. And then we were like in the dressing room at the Conan O'Brien show. And it was like, you know, there's no smoking in the building, of course, whatsoever. But it was like, I forget who started it. Somebody started smoking in our dressing room. And then all of a sudden, like all the Conan O'Brien band guys, you know, got wind of that. And they all came in our dressing room and everybody was smoking. So the dressing room just like turned into this nightclub. It's like the Conan O'Brien show. We had his whole band in there. Everybody was in there, you know, just like partying, whatever. And we were... Oh man, there's just even more stories, God. <laughs> was Max Weinberg uh, uh, was Ma he the band leader then? Yeah, yeah, totally. I got my makeup put on with Max Weinberg in the makeup room. So, <laughs> 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 so it was like this pretty awesome rock star deal, and it's pretty funny too when you play that show because it's very small theater, and when you're playing on the stage, you are like facing the band. You know, it's like the band is like in front of you, like, like a, like a panel, like a jury panel. It's like, there's the stage, there's the band, and then there's the audience behind that. And it's very tiny. So you have to perform in front of like Bruce Springsteen's drummer and all these guys <laughs> <laughs> that are literally just right there in front of you. And it, are it, the volumes really low also? No, actually it was rock show. It was like, it was like full on, man. We, we had our own sound man to mix the sound it was killer it was like a really really awesome thing and and used all rental gear but it was like really great stuff and and it was a totally awesome thing then the next night they put us up in a i can't re it's just crazy but believe me it was it was completely 100 percent rock star <laughs> shit What was it like to have your song, you know, being played all over the country on these major stations? Well, the first time I heard it was the most the most amazing time, which was we were in we just played a show in Pontiac, Michigan, to like the usual crowd of fifteen to twenty people. You know, nobody came to the show. We never did good in the Detroit area. And and we did slightly better in Pontiac. So twenty is better than what we would do in Detroit. So we had just played Pontiac and we were going back to the hotel after the show and it was one of those rare occasions that i didn't go into the convenience store to get snacks with everybody else because you know usually on the way back to the hotel everybody wants to get some you know whatever sandwiches chips whatever take back to the hotel and i didn't go in i didn't want any that night i don't ask me why but i sat in the van while those guys ran in and we were just sitting there and i was just scanning the radio for something to do you know waiting for them to come out and I landed on a station in Detroit that was playing Ain't Talking About Love by Van Halen, which that seemed like a good stopping point to me. So, you know, I'm listening to Ain't Talking About Love. And the minute it finishes, you know, the friggin' radar gun comes on right after it. So it was like from Van Halen to radar, that was the moment I thought, holy shit, man, maybe this is going to happen. <laughs> maybe this is real, you know? And it was like, and then like after Radar Gun, like they played ACDC and I was like, holy crap. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and I really didn't 
get the opportunity to hear it much on the radio as we toured around. You know, it was like, because you know how it is with radio. You got to like be tuned in at the right time or whatever. But we were sure enough seeing the chart action on it. And it made it to the point of actually becoming the, the, the most requested song on the biggest rock station in Dallas, Texas, which was at that time, I think it was called KEGL. So through the fact that it was the most requested song, Radar Gun was released as a single. The most requested song at the biggest rock station in Dallas, they hired us to headline their Halloween Freakers Ball that year, okay? So that's cool. That's good. That's that's awesome. Whatever. I didn't quite understand it, but you know, I was rolling with this rock star thing. I'm like, okay, this is what rock stars do, you know, you headline Freakers Balls. And so we get down there, but you know, here's what makes the show interesting. One was the two opening acts were Ugly Kid Joe and Anthrax. <laughs> <laughs> True fact, mister. That's the, that was the deal. And so, but, but then when we get to the show, when we get to the venue, which was a giant warehouse somewhere in Dallas, huge, big warehouse, it was not only anthrax it was anthrax with special guest dimebag daryl on guitar now they're going before us okay (laughs) oh man we were like that that was a very nervous very nervous time because it was like you know ugly kid joe went and then anthrax and they had you know it was freaking double stack amplifiers like from one side of the stage to the other with the big drum set the whole bit isn't Dimebag Daryl from Dallas? Yeah, he's yeah. the hometown hero. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's like this. This is Anthrax, and we, you know, we all we have is friggin' Radar Gun. You know that that's that. What was going on was since it was only released as a single, the station did not have the album. They just had the single. They just assumed that since that was the single, it was the poppiest song on the album. Okay, when in reality, Radar Gun was the only heavy song on that album, really. You know, maybe Sunday Sports, but... but So it was a case of mistaken identity that we got hired as this. So anyway, just Anthrax play. Their equipment is hauled off the stage. Now we're going for... And, and the room, the Freaker's Ball, is like a place that probably holds 3,000 people. Maybe it's like some big warehouse. And it's all young young boys predominantly. Okay, it's like it's like young dudes in the crowd, and we have to follow Anthrax. So we like literally, you know, we don't have roadies. So you know, we have to like they haul their their wall to wall double stack amps off. We walk out with our little amplifiers, (laughs) (laughs) or you know, like our entire band takes up less space than their drum set did. And we go out there not even really knowing what to do with ourselves. So we just opened with Radar Gun just because, you know, we have to let these kids know what's going on here. And it was awesome. I mean, they were friggin' headbanging. You know, it was like we have 3,000 young dudes in Dallas into it. You know, it was like we are succeeding at following Anthrax, you know, because they love this song on the radio. And as soon as that song's over, we got nowhere to go. It's like, where where do we take it now? <laughs> so we progre- we went through the progressive, you know, like more rocking ones. And, you know, of course, none of the kids had heard any of the other songs we did because, you know, it was like, it was, 
you know, and if they did, it was just on the Brooklyn side. That would have been the only one they would have bought. And things kept getting stranger and stranger in our song selection as we ran out of like the rockin' songs. And we ended up just like, like going country, you know, it was like, we were doing like queen of the world and shit like that. But what was awesome about it was it was the, it was the benefit of the age group of the audience in that they were young boys. They were probably all teenagers. You know, nobody was over 24 years old in the crowd. So it was the peer pressure age. Okay. The perfect age for peer pressure. So rather than boo us or throw things at us, they just took that into their like teenage brains and realized that if anthrax opened for these guys, this must be something that we need to try to understand. (laughs) 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 So they like totally just kind of like, it it was almost like, like we were like getting total, like, like they were trying to learn from it somehow. Because nobody wanted to cast the first stone, you know? It was kind of like, it was like, these guys, you know, they have this huge song on the radio, Anthrax opened for them, and they're playing these weird, slow kind of country songs. We we need to figure this out. <laughs> so it totally worked. It was like the gig, it, I, I can't say it was the best time I ever had, but the gig, it was not a horror time, you know? It wasn't, it wasn't bad. And I, I couldn't believe we survived it. Then... But the night kept on getting better because it was like after that was over and we get out of there, we had rooms reserved by the radio station, some fancy-ass hotel somewhere. We had a road manager, sound man at that time, but but we didn't really have a crew. But, you know, we didn't get to the hotel till like 3 o'clock in the morning. So it was, was, uh, you know, we were tired. We, you know, we'd driven to Dallas. You know, we played this show. We went through the stress of trying to figure out how to follow Anthrax. The whole bit... We get to the hotel and there were no rooms for us. The rooms were all gone. And we were like, and our road manager like threw a fit, tried to figure out what was happening. What was happening was they had all the band's rooms reserved under Ugly Kid Joe's road manager's name. And those guys decided not to stay in town. They decided to leave after the show. So he canceled their rooms. But when he canceled their rooms, they canceled everybody's rooms. Uh. And so there was no rooms available. The hotel was sold out. One more reason to hate ugly kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he didn't know. It was the hotel's fault, basically. And then they sold the room. So it's it's 3.30 in the morning. We're like, you know, drunk, tired. You know, what? You know, it, it had been a hell of a day. So our road manager, like, throws a friggin' fit, you know, like, like completely pitches enough of a fit that they put us in the presidential suite of the hotel, which was amazing. So after this like completely bizarre day, we end up in the place where the president stays, which was this gig. I mean, it was like, it was his, it was gigantic. It had like, like it had two grand pianos in it. (laughs) It had like, it, it had like the giant table with all like the board meeting, you know, chairs all down there. It was just like huge, but I, I commandeered, the friggin' president's bed. So, you know, I had the bed that, that was it. It was, we could have all slept in that bed. I had the bed, had the hot tub right beside it. You could roll out of bed into the hot tub. But what made that so awesome was we were in the presidential suite with a bunch of rollaway beds provided by the hotel. <laughs> so it was probably the only time that rollaway hotel, hotel beds were ever in the presidential suite at the, at the whatever hotel that was. Mm-hmm. 
So it was great. I'm sleeping in the giant president's bed, and everybody else is either on the couch or on a, on some rollaway beds in in like one of the other rooms. There were telephones in the room, so you could call from room to room and the whole bit. So yeah, so there was our that once again the rock star shit was rolling. You know we're we're rock stars. I have this weird vision of you guys playing and uh, Dimebag Daryl watching you guys that night. I doubt it. And they then were, you, they were, when you guys being the bridge that led him later to David Allen Coe. May, <laughs> maybe. Let's, I'll tell you what. Let's just pretend that's true. <laughs> and it may be. There's chance that it could be. Okay. So there we go. We bridged the gap. Hopefully. Maybe. Possibly. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Brian for meeting up with me at a hotel room in Madison, Wisconsin. And you can find out everything you need to know about Brian Henneman at BottleRocketsMusic.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.